At the start of the week and plenty on the radio, this is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. We've got that winter blues perhaps sitting in knowing that, you know, you're waiting for it to get dark, for a chance of a shooting star, of something that's coming into the earth from outer space. I'm Yes, I'm a fan and I will be out. Um, cloud or not, I'll be out. So in Ireland, you fund it yourself. Um, if you can't afford to fund it yourself or take out a loan, then you don't get to have a family. And that's completely inequitable. It's wrong, in my opinion, that those who can afford to have a family can have one and those that can't, don't. The efforts are mad. Oh my God, they're mad. It's like, it's, it's fun, it's new. I've only one problem. Mm-hmm. One is the dancing. And we'll start on the live line and a heartbreaking story of a dad missing for decades and the search for answers from his daughter, Carol Morris. A few weeks ago, we had Carol Morris on the programme and I think it was National Missing Persons Day. But Carol contacted us because she was interested in trying to find out any information at all about her father, um, Albert Timmons, uh, Santry in Dublin, and he vanished into thin air, so to speak, on the eve of Christmas Eve, uh, 23rd of December 1980, and leaving three children. His wife had predeceased him, again, quite young people. And there's been, uh, about a day ago, we were contacted by a family in Australia. And uh, that person's name is Isabel Hool. Isabel, good afternoon. Hello, Joe. How are, are you? you? This is this is um, Good, this is a very helpful addition, I think. I, I I think from reading what you have to say. Tell us about your family's connection. You're in Brisbane, Australia. Tell us your family's yes. connection with Albert Timmons. Well, my mum and dad were very good friends with Albert and his wife Margaret. Okay. And Albert's mother lived up the road from from my family. Okay. And my dad was. Albert's best man at his wedding. Ah. Yeah, so they were very good friends. Okay. And that night, Albert came to visit them. Okay. And my mum and dad lived in Gaeltock Park in Dublin. Yeah. And the pub, the Viscount, was round the corner. Yeah. And Albert called in and he wanted my dad to go down to the Viscount with him. Okay, Christmas drink and, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and... Um, it was a very bitter cold night, my mum mm. said. And she said, no, Albert, look, just stay here and sit down here by the fire and we'll have a drink here, yeah. which they did. And the local Garda was there visiting too. So the four of them sat there uh-huh. and uh, they had a drink. And um, uh, she she recorded what had happened in her diary. Wow. And uh, she said that uh, he he was very down. He was feeling a bit down because his wife had died the year before. And Christmas is a hard time. And they sat there and uh, she said, uh, yeah, his demeanor was, was, he was a bit sad. But he was going up then to pick his daughter yeah, up, which we were with the granny. just up the road, yeah, like yeah. on near the near yeah. the airport. So he'd only about I don't know two miles, I think, to go. Okay. And uh, she said that she she said goodbye to him and stood out there and always waved, always waved yeah. when she stood there at the door to see them go round the corner from Gailtop Park. And that was the last she saw of him. She waved him off, and and they were 
very upset then. I don't think they ever really got oh, over that. They were upset. Yeah. That night or when they discovered yeah. that Albert had gone No, missing. no, when they discovered, yeah, yeah. In, in, in later times. Yeah, yeah, the realisation. You, your, your mother kept a diary. She did. She wrote wow. it all down. She did, yeah. And she did and, remark um, that Albert was cast down that night. Yes, yes. And as Isabel was on the line, Albert's daughter, Carol, also talked to Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Izzy. How are you? Oh, hello, Carol. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I remember your dad and your mum so well. They, yeah. They would come into our house and and they would be beaming. You know, they'd be yeah. linking arms and 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 yeah. the, end of the room would light up when they'd come and in. They were so yeah. happy. Yeah. 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 So this this oh. this this little insight that Isabel, through the remarkable fact that her mother kept a diary, uh, Carol. Yeah. Um, how how do you hear that when you hear Carol's mother recording that Albert was very cast down and... It was shock, yeah. Because yeah. myself and the brother thought he had, like, as I said to you on the last programme, myself and the brother had went to his GP saying that we thought that he needed medication or something, but his GP said he was okay. Yeah. Yeah. But there was just something not right at the time. And did you know he had been in in, uh, Izzy's parents' house? Yeah. That he didn't actually get to the pub? No, no. Yeah, we always thought that's what you call it. He went up and Mr Sherlock wasn't well and he ended up going for a pint in the Viscount. But it now looks like he didn't go to the Viking. He didn't go to the Viking. Yeah, so that's new, and and yeah, the, and yeah, the, I, I, yeah, I, that's that's how I hear hear the story, that he stayed in in Whitehall in my parents' house. Yeah, and your parents, Isabel, they would have known where Albert was going or due to go. Sorry, due to go. Oh, they they knew exactly. Yeah, but did yeah, he did he head exactly. did he head in that direction? Well, she, my mum only saw him turn the corner to go out of Galetop okay. Park. But then he would have come to the main road and he would have had to go left, go up to the airport yeah. and pass yeah. centre, you know, go up that way. Yeah, but it, but yeah it, she didn't see. But it, it, looks, it, looks, it looks like he didn't go left because he, no. ne- he never... It, it appears that yeah. way. And yeah. I just wonder, yeah. and from, yeah. from what Isabel is saying, which is a, 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 a very compassionate insight... From her and her family, um, yeah, yeah. He was never forgotten. Albert was never forgotten. They spoke of him with fond memories, and and yet they were upset, you know. But yeah. but remembering the happy times too. From the live line with Joe Duffy, that's Carol and Isabel. And on Morning Ireland, booster jabs for over 40s and warnings of a tidal wave of infection in the UK. More details are expected this week on plans to give COVID booster shots to people in their 40s and to extend the vaccination programme to children between 5 and 11. At the same time, there's continuing concern about the spread of the Omicron variant. The British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, warned that what he called a tidal wave of infection was on the way there and he announced plans to give a vaccine booster to everyone over the age of 18. 
Pat Leahy, Irish Times political editor, is on the line. Pat, the government was signalling over the weekend that booster shots may soon be available to people in their 40s. Um, When are people likely to learn more? Yeah, we think it's going to be towards the end of this week, possibly Thursday or Friday, when we see an updated plan on that. I mean, people may be disappointed here that it's a plan that they'll get rather than uh, rather than their actual boosters. But the capacity, I think, in the uh, the capacity in the the, the booster program and the overall vaccination program is likely to come under scrutiny this week, and we'll also see. Uh, the first vaccination for children between five and eleven. Of course, they're receiving their first uh, their uh, their first dose of the vaccine. So, I think as fears grow about the spread of the new variant, there's going to be uh, an intense focus on the vaccine rollout, the vaccination rollout uh, this week. Mm, given the numbers queuing last week in Dublin, I, I had a look this morning at what's available in the city today. There's a walk-in clinic for 50 to 69-year-olds in City West today. Then that's it until Thursday. There are no walk-ins today in Croke Park, DCU, Swords, Ongar, UCD or Grange Gorman. Um, you can imagine, as you said yourself a moment ago, that, that the pace of this rollout is likely to come under further scrutiny. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's what you'll see, and I suppose the reason why there aren't walk-in walk-ins available in those places is because they're already at capacity in terms of their scheduled uh, appointments. But I think what what you will see, we we'll probably see this in the doll as well as in the media, is acute pressure on the government to increase the capacity of the vaccine program. And if you cast your mind back, that's the sort of thing that we saw in the early stages of the um, uh, of the vaccination program as well back in April and May of this year, when the government was under fire over the what people saw to be the the slow rollout of the program. Now we know that. That subsequently accelerated very impressively. But at that time, the government pleaded, I suppose, justifiably that it simply didn't have the vaccines to give out. But now we're told that there is no constraint on supply. They have the vaccines. So it's simply a matter of putting in place the capacity to to deliver them. And I think that's where you'll see the pressure this week. Mm, And interesting, a a health service source telling your own paper this morning that much of the focus of the updated vaccine programme is likely to be on the initial rollout to young children. Yeah, that's right. They want to get the, I suppose, given the extent of infections of younger children and in school settings over the coming, over recent weeks, that's where there's going to be a priority. So if they have to choose, it seems, between uh, getting the first dose into children's arms and getting the over 40s done, then it's the children that will get the priority at this stage. I see the HSE is also saying that it will increase capacity to uh, by 25% to 200 shots, uh, 200,000 shots per week this week. So that will presumably make a dent in things. But, you know, there's a lot of people waiting for both their booster and, of course, a lot of children, half a million children or so uh, in that age group. So, yeah, it's going to be a struggle, I think, for for the HSE to ramp up its capacity to that degree in a short period of time. Christmas is less than two weeks away. Are there any suggestions at this stage, Pat, that restrictions may be tightened further? I think that all, there is suggestions. Yes, it is 
something that's talked about constantly around political and government circles and I suspect in the country at large and I suppose people have an eye on what is happening in the UK with Boris Johnson last night warning of a tidal wave of the new variant about to hit the UK and the fear I suppose here is that if that is replicated then you know there may be a there may be a move to further restrictions. We in opinion poll dealing with this at the end of last week and it did find that there was some public support for some tightening of restrictions but significant resistance against anything that might look like a return to lockdown closing non-essential retail or closing the schools or uh, or anything like that so i think you know again there will be a focus on that aspect of it this week what is what are the case numbers what is the spread of the new variant and if that takes off like a rocket as it as it appears to be doing in the uk then you know it wouldn't be too hard to imagine recommendations coming from neffet later in the week that uh, that further restrictions will be introduced but that's entirely contingent uh, upon the case numbers and the spread of the the variant which is a bit of an unknown uh, at this mm. stage pat leahy from morning ireland with rachel english then later gavin jennings was also talking about the new variant and the situation in the uk Let's go to Britain next and Boris Johnson's plan to offer a booster or third dose of a COVID vaccine to all adults there before the end of the year to cope with what he predicts will be a tidal wave of Omicron. It's dominating the front pages of newspapers there. One million jabs a day to avoid New Year lockdown, says The Telegraph. Emergency race for all to get boosters, says The Express. Boris's booster rocket, says The Mail. Oh my God, says The Sun. Laura Hughes is political and diplomatic correspondent with The Financial. Times, whose front page has the more sober headline of test and trace could run until 2025 under new health service contracts. Laura, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Good morning. What is Boris's plan and, and can it be done? Well, his plan is to get all adults vaccinated before the end of the year and that is an extraordinary ambition. So he's brought it forward by a whole month. Previously it was the end of January. And in order to do this, I mean, it really does feel like a a wartime effort. You're going to see pop-up vaccination centres, pharmacies, GP surgeries, everywhere. It's going to be used with packed full of thousands of volunteers sticking jabs in arms. And they're going to be open seven days a week. I think you can expect to see GPs being diverted for a lot of the next few weeks to really focus on this because clearly the evidence has shown the government that two vaccinations is not enough to prevent illness from this new variant but three is and so it is absolutely vital if uh, the government wants to try and save the economy by not ordering people to stay away from one another and to stay working at home that they get people to a position where they basically can keep to keep the economy and keep society open because unlike last time I don't think we have the furlough cash reserves that we did that will help people through a very difficult period and I really do think the government yes of course their number one priority is health and public health but also behind the scenes it's they are incredibly worried about the impact just the next few weeks are already starting to have on the hospitality industry for example so i think that is very much behind this massive massive push now yeah so no further restrictions close contacts allowed to carry on and not have to stay at home and boost as many people as possible will it work well i think what 
is really happening on the ground is that obviously the government messaging here is slightly confusing because they're saying don't work from home but do go to a party and that doesn't make a lot of sense to people um so i think a lot of members of the public are just taking the decision on themselves to stop socializing especially in the run-up to the christmas because ultimately if one member of your family gets the virus and then they have to self-isolate for 10 days that ruins christmas so people are taking decisions onto themselves as we have done and have seen last year and the year before sort of getting ahead of the government here but Clearly, the government can't come out and say don't go to Christmas parties because of the huge pushback that you would have from the hospitality yes. sector. We've already seen the travel industry are you know, up in arms because of all the new travel restrictions and rules on people taking PCR tests before and after they, they go anywhere. And that stops people from traveling. So they can, they can put out these messages, but people, people listen and watch the news and they make their own minds up and... I think that is why a lot of Conservative MPs are very angry about these new restrictions because they say it is punishing a lot of businesses. Laura Hughes from Morning Ireland with Gavin Jennings. Then later on Today with Claire Byrne, Professor Luke O'Neill was telling Claire about finding out he had COVID himself. I have. Yeah, sadly, yes. I, I managed to pick it up off a close contact How are you feeling? Last week. I'm, I'm pretty good, actually, yes. Yeah, a slight cough, maybe, slight sniffles, but mercifully nothing too severe. The vaccine is protecting me, Claire, let's put it that way, you know. Yeah, it was very efficient. I was a close contact. Uh, I was sent to the three tests by the HSE. Uh, took my second test on Friday, came up positive. Very clear positive, by the way, in case people haven't had this. It comes up within a second, the band, you know, in a little window. Uh, got my PCR test Saturday. Got the result yesterday, positive. So now I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in isolation for the next few days, really. OK, and you're feeling OK, which is good news. But just take us through. So when do you believe you were a close contact? Yeah, it was probably about eight days ago, I think. Someone okay. was ident- a close contact identified me, basically, having to spend time with me at work, you know, and the, the guidelines as to what constitutes close contact. And then within a day, actually, the, the antigen test began to arrive, you know. And I began every second day you take one, you know. Mm. And day four then, which was Friday, from, from having got the test, I came up positive. That's how it worked. And I had, I, had no, I had no symptoms, really, to be honest. I had sli- maybe slight, slight sniffles. Uh, on Friday morning, I noticed maybe, you know, nothing major. And in fact, it just shows you how the power of antigen testing in a way, you know, because it came up very quick and I could stay home, you see, and that's what the testing is all about. Really. Yeah, because we know anyone who's used to using them, you have to wait 15 minutes before you get a clear result. You're saying it came up pretty quickly, did it? Well, I was amazed as an immunologist there, but within two seconds, the thing moves up the window, as people might know, you know. Yeah. The band appeared immediately, so whether I was a strong positive, maybe, possibly, you know, but it came up very quickly. But yeah, the guideline is to wait, wait the 15 minutes and then see if a band comes up. But certainly within, it, within a few seconds, my band had come up. My next question for you is, have you had your booster shot? Well, that's the irony. I'd had the booster on Thursday, you see, but obviously oh. it takes uh, it takes seven days really for the booster to really kick in and protect. But that was a, that was an ironic part of the story. So, yeah, so I've been boosted as well now, so I'll be I'll be quadruply protected. I see myself having had the booster and an infection that will really strengthen my immune system. Well, it'll be interesting to see what how your antibodies perform after having three shots and COVID. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what strain you have? No, I, I was at the PCR test centre in the uh, Explorium, actually, and I asked them what, what the test was, and they said, no, for the moment, they're not identifying Omicron. Uh, you got you got an, an extra test and done to check for that. I suspect they'll be measuring Omicron from now on, though, mind you, I would think, you know, given that, as, as we're about to discuss, I imagine it will become the commonest one here. And Claire asked Luke about the situation in the UK. 
Last night, Boris Johnson, people may have heard him saying there's a tidal wave of Omicron coming. Is he right? It's a dramatic word, Claire. It's a tidal wave. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it's rising really, really fast in the UK. I mean, the doubling time is remarkable. In London at the moment, they're saying 80% of all cases are Omicron right now, you know. And given that it's so transmissible, like probably three times as transmissible as Delta, it will take over, you know. And so in Ireland, of course, given the amount of travel between our two countries and how transmissible it is, we can expect it to start rising dramatically here as well. Mm -hmm. I certainly think in the next two, three, four weeks, we'll see a big rise in Omicron cases here. And there's a lot of claims being made about it. You know, everyone's watching South Africa saying that if you're hospitalised, you're not in hospital for as long as you were with Delta, that it's milder and so on. What's your own take on it? I think it's a case of hope for the best, really, and and then plan for the worst, that, that classic phrase in a way. that the best side is the South African data saying it is milder. Now, of course, the problem is that could be younger people. Uh, There's a very high rate of infection there, remember. South Africa was badly hit by COVID, so it's a bit different to us. But that would suggest it could be milder. Now, of course, it may well be more severe in older people and so on. And the other concern, the main concern we have there, to be honest, is the numbers game. If so many get infected, even if a tiny number of them end up in hospital, it will still put pressure on the healthcare system. And that's what the UK are worried about, you see. So, But still, there are signs... What we know about the virus at the moment is that that one very important part of your immune system, it's called T-cells. We all know about antibodies, don't we? But, but never forget there's a second part of your immune system called T-cells. Uh, the analogy is that like the Air Force, they, they bomb the invader, you know, whereas antibodies like the ground troops, they seem to be holding up against this. There was a very good uh, paper actually about three days ago showing T-cells still fight Omicron. So it's not as if your immune system is powerless in the face of this, you know. And that gives us, again, grounds that maybe this is going to be a milder version, you see. But the trouble is, inevitably, the the, the terrible phrase, we still don't know enough about it. But still, there are signs there that give us a little bit of optimism. And does the vaccine activate the T-cells? Very much so, yes. And in fact, what's happening is the T-cell is more sort of uh, diverse than what it recognises in the enemy. The antibodies are more restricted. And of course, the bit the antibodies recognize the changed in the spike, you see, and therefore the antibodies are less able to recognize it. But the T cells have a much broader thing to recognize. And therefore, Omicron has not escaped T cells, it looks like. Mm-hmm. So our Air Force is intact, if you like. And that gives us grounds. I mean, what T cells do is they stop severe disease, they don't stop you getting infected. Antibodies are good at limiting infection, but T-cells stop severe disease. So again, we're keeping our fingers crossed that the T-cells will, will basically save us against Omicron is the idea. Professor Luke O'Neill from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was reflecting on his interview with journalist Charlie Bird after his recent diagnosis of motor neuron disease. We had uh, quite a response uh, in our email over the weekend to Charlie Bird's appearance on the Late Late Show on Friday night with Claire, his wife Claire Mould, or Claire Bird, I should say. Um, and they, uh, people were just knocked out by what Charlie had to say and how he said it and... Um, the resilience he showed um, and yet he was an open book um, as is his way um, and it was really quite quite uh, a, a, an appearance by Charlie on the programme really appreciated him coming on doing that a lot of people talking about how uh, it, Charlie reminded them of their own loved ones who may have been in the similar situation or is going through the same thing and, and certainly there was a sense of solidarity in that and then there was a great sense uh, of what he can do with regards to Crow Patrick. He said he'd love to climb Crow Patrick and people got in touch with me on, on uh, Instagram but also to uh, to the show here on uh, email 
to say how can we help make that happen and what can we do to make it easier for him uh, to do that so uh, and I had a little bit of contact with him myself on, on Saturday and he was very very moved by the response he received to his appearance on the show and uh, I know Vicky Phelan very kindly uh, they're, they're due to me today for um, tea and cake um, and he uh, Vicky was watching the show the other night she watched it back because she was in a hotel room with her two kids and she just wanted to say bravo she wrote to him you were, you were so vulnerable sharing so openly the terror of living with a disease that you know is going to take everything from you your voice your swallow your mobility yet your love of life family and friends shone through I have no doubt that you brought comfort to so many and I really hope that you get comfort from all the love and support that is being sent your way from all over Ireland I look forward she said to meeting you and Claire on Monday which of course is today and uh, she herself had a busy weekend with the family um, and even got as far as <laughs> Dubray books. Uh, she got an iron sweater for, for Amelia because of the she's blaming Taylor Swift for that. Um, and they, but most importantly, they went for chips at McDonald's, which is, of course, one of my favourite spots. So excellent taste. Uh, wishing them all well this morning. They, they the feelings to Jim and Amelia and Dara and, of course, Vicky. And I'm always... Um, struck when talking to Vicky about how important and this is not something I say in, in, a, in, a, in a trite way at all how important it is when people say oh it's such a lovely feedback and such a lovely response it really is that people send letters Charlie was telling me uh, I think it was off air on Friday night that I said where do people send letters to you how do they get you they, he said they write Charlie Bird Wicklow bang like that's the beauty of this country of course that, that things like that can happen and uh, but the emails that Vicky gets that you all sent her and do continue to send her and the um, letters or cards or whatever they might be to Charlie, they really do lift um, the spirits and the heart and, and, and help propel him forward. So anyway, thinking about Charlie and Claire and an extended family today and of course Vicky and her family today. Um, and no doubt we'll, we'll, we'll talk to both of them in due course again. On the Ryan Tipperty Show. And in the morning, looking skyward for the Geminids shooting stars. Skygazers should be treated to a display of shooting stars tonight as the Geminid meteor shower returns. Francis McCarthy, astronomer at the Black Rock Observatory, joins us. Francis, I, I think a lot of people out there could probably do with a good display of shooting stars. Where should they look and what might they expect? Well, we'll have to hope that the weather cooperates with this one. The Geminids are... Um, a lovely meteor shower, usually a fabulous rate of, of shooting stars visible. Tonight, it'll be best after midnight because the moon will have set. But of course, we need clear skies. If it stays cloudy tonight, Tuesday's forecast overnight is pretty good. So you want to be looking south, southwest after midnight. Gemini is a distinctive constellation above and to the left of Orion. And Orion is the one with those three stars in the middle of its belt, quite easy to see. And that's rising shortly after the sun sets. So you want to set yourself somewhere comfortable, not underneath a streetlight, get yourself a deck chair, get yourself a blanket and plan to be outside for about an hour. At its peak, there can be as many as 100 shooting stars, but you will need to be somewhere with dark skies to see that many. 
they're a reasonably slow moving set of shooting stars. There's not going to be a, a zoom and then a bright train. They'll be steady and moving across the sky um, faster than satellites, lasting only a few seconds, but often very bright in color and often different hints of color. Because this set of shooting stars, unlike most which come from comets, this set of shooting stars are linked to an asteroid. So the material that they're made of is a little bit different, a few more trace elements, and that gives us the colours, much as fireworks come in different colours. And why are they visible then at this time of the year? It has to do with the orbit of their parent asteroid. It's an asteroid called Phaeton. It was only discovered in 1983, even though we've known about these shooting stars, this particular one, for hundreds of years. This asteroid goes through space and leaves little trail of crumbs. Material from this asteroid has been scattered through space. And at this time of the year, we pass through that material. Now, even if this year is clouded out, ne this time next year, we'll be in the same part of our orbit and we'll have a chance to look for them again. And they are getting stronger because the stream of material left over from this asteroid is being affected by Jupiter. And it's getting a little bit more concentrated and stronger. So don't panic if you don't see anything this year. This one's going to run and run. Mm, it does sound, though, as if if the weather cooperates, they could be very beautiful. Yes. And the lovely thing about these ones is they're it is possible to see them before midnight. Most um, meteor showers are best after midnight because of how the Earth is turning in its orbit. But in this case, the direction of space that we see them from is nicely risen when it gets dark. It's just tonight there's going to be a bit of a moon. And at least in Cork, we're, we're forecast for cloud. Hopefully the rest of the country gets away from some of that cloud. Mm -hmm. But if people don't see them tonight, th there are other opportunities during oh, the yeah. week. Tomorrow, uh, they, this one is a fairly narrow peak, but a couple of days on each side is normally OK. I've checked the international observations. It's slowly coming up. Right now, it's only sort of about 20 an hour that people are seeing. And that can easily go to 100 an hour. But that will be tonight. And then probably tomorrow night, we're talking more about the 50, 60 an hour. But it's a long night. Get yourself wrapped up. And it's the Mark I eyeballs are what you need for this. You don't need a telescope. You don't need binoculars. It's best with your eyes. And there's something kind of special, isn't there, about the idea of shooting stars at this time of the year? I think so. I think so. At, at this time of year to appreciate what are very long nights you know, we're, we've got that winter blues perhaps sitting in knowing that, you know, you're waiting for it to get dark, for a chance of a shooting star, of something that's coming into the earth from outer space. I Yes, I'm a fan and I will be out. Um, cloud or not, I'll be out. Frances McCarthy of the Black Rock Observatory from Morning Ireland with Rachel English. And in the morning, can you have a sustainable Christmas? Well, writer and broadcaster Mancom McGann and writer Elaine Butler were getting into a green festive spirit. This is a perennial problem around this time because, start with you on this one, uh, Mancom, because Christmas is a time of excess. Mm -hmm. Excess everything. 
Yeah, and nobody's really happy about it. Like everyone ha- sees it as a series, as a time of either overindulgence or, or stress or just this pressure to consume. And we do, we all sort of get a sense that there's a different way of doing it. There's a way of making this a festival where people root back to things that are important in society or important for the planet. And we also have this phenomenal resource. Like what I think just before COVID, Retail Ireland said we spent 4.65 billion euros, 4.6 billion euros on, on Christmas. So we have the potential for, to direct that money to other things or just not spend it at all. Mm-hmm. So it's a time of amazing potential, you know, to reimagine how we do How Christmas. long though has Christmas been like this? You know, a, a yeah. time of, of excess. I mean, we, we, you know, do we think back to even the schools through the, fa- uh, the, the fields, like Alice Taylor talking about Christmas long ago and there being the turkey there and being like, you know, the candle in every window and people having these rituals coming back from far away and gathering but not buying, not buying so much plastic consumerist tat. That's a that's a new thing, and it's clear it doesn't need to be that way. Even though on the food side, somebody said to me uh, last week, we eat like it's Christmas every day now. You know, there's no treat really, is there, in in the excess food because we we have access to that if we want every day of the year. Yeah, and yet probably everyone can still recognise that apps, that particular sense of overindulgence and bloating you get at Christmas. It's not a comfortable thing we associate with Christmas, opening the belt and being so flat, lying on the sofa so long that we can't move. <laughs> yeah. We think, you know, there's a lot about Christmas that we thought about is not comfortable. Let's talk about uh, the other uh, elements of Christmas then, Elaine, starting with the decorations. And I don't, I don't know about other people, but in our house, we do tend to reuse the decorations for years and years and years. Yeah, I think Mancon's right. There's an awful lot about Christmas that's actually very sustainable, particularly a traditional Christmas. So we're like yourselves. We take down our Christmas decorations every year and it's like being reintroduced to a family member. It's like, oh, I remember when I got this or when somebody made this. And like if we just enjoy that process more in our lives throughout the rest of the year and we approach that with our wardrobes and things like that. But I think that... um, when it comes to decorations, it's probably one of the most sustainable aspects of Christmas. And if you want something new and that's different just to change it up, then paper decorations are so easy to make um, and you can use existing paper so you're not you're like, you know, mm-hmm. involved in cutting down any forests. And there's some simple ideas on the website, but just for something that's a bit of fun. But really reusing is the most sustainable thing that you can do. What Um, what about the tree? We have this debate every year, don't we? Artificial or real? Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it depends on, like, you can do a life cycle analysis to see what is the most sustainable. Um, But on average, it's about 20 years for a plastic tree to be, have a lower carbon footprint than a real tree. Mm -hmm. Um, The most sustainable option is to get a pot grown tree and to use it every year. Um, and I know that there's a company in Cork and they're allowing you to rent the tree. You, Christmastree.ie is their website. And you can rent it and they'll collect it for you in January. And that's growing. That's in a pot. It's growing that's... in a pot. And what they'll do is they'll plant it out um, the next year and, you you know, next year you can rent a different one. But you can also buy trees that you can keep in a pot in your back garden every year if you want. Bring it in. Wheel it in on the 8th of Wheel December. Wheel it in <laughs> with all the little critters in it. Yeah. But um, if you do buy a real tree, then it's really important that... At, at in January that you compost it and you either send it to the council or bring it to the council. The councils have generally great drop-off centres because composting will 
put the carbon back into the soil rather than if it goes into landfill mm. or you throw it. Not that anybody lists the show would throw it into a ditch, but you know. But I use the needles from the Christmas tree to mulch my ericaceous plants in my garden because it's valuable. So why would you give it to the council when mm-hmm. you can when you can use it yourself? Use it yourself, exactly. And then there's those pesky energy sapping lights. We know the way we used to light our houses was with, with, with this candle in every window, which was beautiful. Maybe not totally fire safe, but it had such resonance to it. And then, as you said, in the last few years, we started putting these huge amounts of lights and we don't think of the carbon footprint of them. But because they're lighting all night long for like almost a month, they do, it does catch up. And again, there will be different accounts of how much it was. But I saw one 12, 10 hours a day over just over the 12 days of Christmas those old-fashioned lights, like the non-LED, can produce enough CO2 to inflate 12 balloons. So you sort of get a visual picture of it. And that's that's direct carbon. I mean, it depends where the electricity sources come from, but it's actually carbon that'll go out into the air. And we know that there are other ways of doing it. The best like statistic I heard was for, by changing your indoor lights to LED lights, which, you know, most of them in the shops now are available are LED lights. For probably about a tenner, you'll get a good set of LED lights. There's They're using up to 100 times less power than traditional lights. And they say they last for 100,000 years. That's 208 Christmases. So one set of lights in theory will live last for 208 Christmases rather. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if one bulb goes, they still keep on lighting. But if you already have the other ones, is mm-hmm. the best advice not to keep using them? I get confused about this. Don't they say with the car, the car you have is the one the best one for the environment. Yeah, and that's why I love Elaine's website so much. It sort of goes into all these details, but a hundred times less power, that surely must be worth it, you know. Yeah, but then you see you have to dispose of the traditional ones that you had and you have to go out and buy these other ones that have to be made by somebody. Yeah, it's never clear cut. Yeah. And it's you Only when you do a life cycle analysis can you be sure, but when it's that sort of difference between like, you know, 100,000 times more efficient, um, it probably makes sense to switch over to them or maybe limit the ones that are your traditional ones to where you put them on for a couple of hours a day. So you might put that, you know, uh, in the back garden or something just for special occasions and use the LED out the front. Solar power lights, you can get those now, little fairy lights that are on a solar panel. Yeah, and if anyone wants to recommend really good ones, I'd be eager to hear because I got a set secondhand from somebody and I get about an hour out of them. That's about it, you know. They're lovely for that hour, but I don't get much more than that. Okay, uh, maybe that's not an option then. But then uh, even with candles, you need to be careful, you know, because candles is paraffin-based. So mm-hmm. in theory, depending on what the candle you're using, and the production of paraffin, it's a petroleum-based product, you know, it can create dirt onto, uh, you know, both in the water, in the soil, in the air as well. But we know, we uh, traditionally, what was being used, it was like, it was um, a beeswax. And we can come back to, or we can go soya-based candles, or even an organic... Um, um, fat for the candle can be used. Do either of you wrap Christmas presents anymore? Well, I don't do Christmas presents except for kids. I know that might sound bah humbug, but um, <laughs> over the years, like I remember helping my mum to declutter her wardrobe and uh, everything we were taking out of the wardrobe was sort of lovingly bought Christmas presents for me over the years and fair play to her she'd kept them but it did make me realise that you know just the amount of time and effort I put in doesn't guarantee that it's not it's going to be appreciated that it's going to be used by the person I know it was appreciated and then I tried experience gifts I tried lots of things and vouchers and all that jazz yeah and I, I have a my feeling is that I don't like giving vouchers. So what I tend to do, my mum and myself, we went and we had a day out together on Friday, you know, and so we do that instead, spend time together. I bought lunch or whatever, and I prefer to spend time with somebody than to give things to them. But I think um, when it, if you are giving presents, and probably a lot of people have bought them by now, um, 
I do think when it comes to the wrapping and all of that, you can make your life a bit easier by using reusable gift bags. And I always think it's funny, you know, somebody who's sort of particularly frugal or savvy or sustainable because they never write on the gift label. (laughs) In our house, if you get a gift bag, there'll never be, you know, a note on the gift label. And then you can buy tissue paper if you want to sort of jazz it up, you know, if, if, you know, to make it look like it was bought specially. But in our family, gift bags go around years and years. Makes perfect sense. I don't see why anyone would do it any other way. Mm. Elaine Butler and Manka McGann from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, fasten on your sequins, Dancing with the Stars is back. And Ryan Tuberty was chatting to two of the contestants, starting with Aslan's Billy McGuinness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's back, it's back. He's dancing in front of me already. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'd say, Billy, we've, we've met a, a fair old few times now down through the years. Uh, Billy McGuinness, um, Aslan, stalwart and superstar... <laughs> I don't know how to I don't know what to say Neither do I You're doing it You've, You come in here You've got a feather boa on You've got sequins Coming out your ears You've got glitter On your On your On your eyebrows You look Fabulous Billy right, Thank you very much Ryan Okay so they said They call you And they say Okay tough guy Dancing with the Stars, what do you think? I thought it was a wind-up straight away. Straight away. I said, that's Christy and the lads winding me get up. Away. It cannot be serious, Dancing with the Stars. So I actually said to them, can I get back to you? Of course, then the email came in and I went, oh my God. It's real. This is real. And uh, first of all, it took me, it was a very quick decision because it's me that's doing it and it's something that's out of the band that isn't involved really. Do you know what I mean? Now they're 100% supportive. When I rang Christy and I said, Christy, I've been asked to do Dancing with the Stars. He said, Billy, you have to do it. You have to do it. He said, it'd be brilliant. So, and the whole band have been like that, you know, so, and the family and everyone's supportive. Me, I think I'm a bit nuts. The first week, I, I couldn't get out of the car. My neighbour saw me getting out of the car and said, Billy, are you at the putting your back out? And I says, no, no, you don't want to know. <laughs> I, was, I was in bits. but Because um, you're using parts of your body and muscles and things that just wouldn't get a, a, a day's work out of them in a given week. Absolutely, absolutely. It's all about the position and, and uh, now I'm onto the, the steps, the actual like the feather step and this step and that step and I'm going, oh my God. It's like from 40 years I've been in Aslan which we're celebrating our 40th year next year which is we're doing 40 years 40 gigs, right? Mm. So the timing for Dancing with the Stars is perfect yeah. to do it now as opposed to, because I wouldn't be able to do it next year because we're doing like the Tree Arena and uh, on in September the 17th and there's a load of, there's 40 other gigs. So the timing was, I thought yeah. about it and I went, this is perfect timing. And you'll be fit as a fiddle for it too. And I'll be fit as a fiddle yeah. as well. Which Are you is great. fit? Are you, do you have any sort of regime at all in terms of yeah. day to day? Yeah, do you? I, I do spinning uh, in Bettystown, in the gym in Bettystown okay. every day. So that's, that's, all that's right, kind so of, be, that's, yeah. So it. that's, but the fact that I'm the oldest as well, I'm the oldest competitor and they've teamed me up with the youngest competitor. The youngest so, dancer? The youngest dancer, yeah. pro dancer, yeah. yeah. So we have our demographic age group will be covering everyone yeah. from, she's in her teens, up to me, I'm 61, so it's great, you know. But do you know what, Ryan? Age is just a number, and I'm going out there to prove to everyone that you can be taken out of your comfort zone. Yeah. 40 years of music, I'm going into a world of dance, 
and it's going to be a challenge and I bring it on. It's I, great. And I'm, do you know what, Ryan? I'm already having great fun yeah, with my partner. We're, like, we're spending half the time dancing, falling around the studio yeah. laughing. Yeah, it's great. just, it's great fun. And if people might hear that sound of leather in the studio this morning, it's actually your jacket. Um, <laughs> you're not wearing all the things I said you were wearing. I, and, but this brings me to the next point. You're, you're like a biker jacket guy going into a feather boa world. How are the outfits? The efforts are mad. Oh my God, they're mad. It's like, it's never mind. Like, everything is great. Uh, I'm, I'm loving this. It's fun. It's new. I've only one problem. Mm-hmm. One is the dancing. That's the problem. <laughs> like, that is the problem because I can't dance. When I rang my mother, yes. I rang me ma and I says, listen, ma, I'm doing Dancing with the Stars. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. She was on the floor laughing. She was going, you can't dance, Billy. You can't dance. You can't dance. I said, I know, ma. That's what's going to make it so funny. (laughs) But we're having a ball. And the outfits, I mean, to go, I am leather jacket, jeans, have been for the whole, since I was in my nappies. Do you know what I mean? It's a leather jacket. So to go to sequins and sparkles and getting the spray tan. What's that like? It's I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah. Right, this is a true story. Come on. We were in getting the spray tan, right? And it was down by the tree arena, okay? So I'm in me boxers and your woman sprayed me. So I said, listen, I'm going to run out to reception and give everyone a laugh. So I ran out to reception. In your boxers. In me boxers, where all the other dancers and celebrities were. And I'm dancing around reception, doing all these pirouettes and everything. Of course, I turn around and there's a big glass window yes. there and all the builders are on the other side of the building and they're getting their phones out and they're cracking up laughing. I didn't know the builders oh, were yes. on the other side. Yes. But, but look. Oh, that's great. <laughs> True story. Oh, that's great. Well, that's Billy McGuinness. Then Ryan spoke to another Dancing with the Stars contestant, jockey Nina Carberry. Tell me about your communication when they said, Nina, we'd like you to be on Dancing with the Stars. Your initial reaction was what? I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, I wonder what, I, I wasn't really sure. And I was kind of said it to my husband's head and I said, what do you think? He said, do it, do it, you'd be brilliant. I was like, seriously. And he was like, no, you'd be great. And I said, you're always giving out to me about dancing. I'm so tense. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I said, sure, I'll give it a, a last. And uh, no, it was, it's, it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. The is last it? two weeks is, I've, I've no, no, dancing me at all the beat and everything the rhythm Billy's saying he's he's not a great dancer but at least he's got a musical background you kind of have a, half an idea about a rhythm or whatever but no I found it very very hard the first week and uh, at least the second week I started getting the hang of the steps but one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life uh, How old are your, your kids now your girls? Yeah. Oh, four and two. So they, Rosie and Holly, yeah. They'd be kind of half, well, four would be kind of half aware that their mother will be up dancing on a, on yeah. a Sunday night. But I noticed, it's interesting, Billy, that so Christy turns around and says, yeah, 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 do it. And equally, uh, when we're talking to Nina there and she says that her husband, Ted, said, yeah, 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 do it. Isn't it funny that <laughs> all these people that in your life that love you are going, yeah, you should definitely do it, Billy. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I you know think, what I mean? There's guilt- something a bit yeah. weird about the encouragement you're getting. There's a guilty, there's a guilty pleasure in there yeah, for the rest of them. Because they're going to be watching. <laughs> exactly. Like, obviously, Christy and Catherine are going to come out to the show and all Great. the band are going to come out to the show. My family's going to come out to the show. But there's a guilty, Isn't they're there? going to be saying, wait till you see this Aegis yeah, in the sequence. Yeah. I wait till you see him messing up the moves. So, that's, yeah. That's it. And Nina, you were like, you're, you know, as you say, your husband's saying, well, you can't sing, you can't dance. Everything note in your head. You'll be brilliant. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it'll be very interesting. I, uh, I just hope my pro doctor makes me look good.
<laughs> what are you what but, are you looking forward to most about the experience, Nina? Oh, uh, like obviously learning to dance properly and to a level that I'll never ever ever have achieved before. So it's it's I'm really excited about it and I'm getting into it now and I think uh, I love it. You know, when I start doing the shows it'll be brilliant. It's a great experience mm. and uh no, I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's a massive challenge ahead but we give it a lash anyway, like, you know, so it'll be, yeah. it'll be good fun, it, I think, it, as Billy said, it'll be a bit of crack. A bit of crack, and, you know, successful jockeys like yourself tend to have a, a height advantage, you know, as in the less of it, the better. So how, how's yeah. the height advantage differentiation working with your pro dancer? Uh, we're similar kind of height when I have my heels on, and uh, but it's the posture thing I really struggle with because <laughs> I'm always, obviously bent over on a horse, like lying forward, so this is the opposite, have to keep your... Keep your shoulders back, your head in the right position. It's very, very hard. Ramrod yeah. straight, isn't that? Yeah, Ramrod yeah, yeah. straight. I keep dropping me right arm. Really? Drop, yeah. Stop dropping your right arm, Billy. Yeah. It just, it's just, you know, she has me doing, she has me holding two bottles of water oh. for five minutes in the position and then drop them and then go back into that position again with the, the water as weights. So before <laughs> we start dancing, that's what she has me doing, just to get into that correct posture. Billy, yeah. that, that sounds like you're you're spending some time in it being tortured by by the CIA in, in a dark room somewhere. That would be easier than what we're going through. Oh that would God. be so easy, right? Okay, so Nina, Billy, we have Gronia show again. Neil Delamere, Ellen Keane, Angus McGreena. Uh, from from what I read about it, Gronia is being tipped as one of the favourites. Ellen wants to win it and is openly yeah. admitting that. Yeah. Um, Neil and Angus didn't have too much to say on, on in that regard, but already we're seeing the runners and riders, if you will, <laughs> Nina. Uh, you know, where, where are you with confidence in terms of? Do you want to win it, or is it just a lark, or what's the? Crack? I I want. I don't want to be knocked out first. I think um, everyone will feel like that. You know, yeah. I'm sure Nina, you feel the same. Yeah. It'd be like yeah. I'll just I'll be gutted if the forced to go. So as long as I avoid the forced exit. I'm happy, Ryan. Billy McGuinness and Nina Carberry from Dancing with the Stars on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the morning, fertility treatment in Ireland. Today with Claire Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell was looking at the issue. Some women and couples in Ireland are getting into significant debt and having to make difficult life choices just to try and have a family. It's because publicly funded fertility treatment has yet to happen here despite government commitments. So why has this not happened and what are the implications for women and couples trying to conceive? Brian O'Connell has been looking at all of this for us. Good morning, Brian. Yes, good morning, Claire. How are you? Good. So take us through the overview here. Well, the issue really is that we're we're pretty much on our own in European terms and not having publicly funded or subsidised fertility treatment. So what we have are several private facilities which would offer services to couples or individuals. The costs, as you said, can be significant, although you do get a small percentage back on tax credits. I've been speaking to women in recent days who've had to go to their local credit union. They've had to say, for example, they wanted car loans. And this is in order to be able to afford fertility treatment and to start a family. So I do have an an update shortly from the Department of Health, just in terms of where we are now, as this is an issue costing families here tens of thousands of euros in, in some cases. OK, and you'll, you'll come to that shortly, but you want to start by bringing us one woman's experience and this is a person who has done a lot of research in this area. Well, June Shannon is a well-known medical and healthcare journalist and her f- fertility treatment costs a significant amount of money and that outlay meant life decisions had to be put on hold. She told me about some of her journey in becoming a parent. So we spent six years doing IVF treatment, which was five cycles of IVF and in total we've spent €21,000 to date which has been funded by ourselves, mainly by uh, getting loans out from the credit union. 
Um, and our last cycle was 8,000 euro. That was for um, our last ever cycle. And sadly, my mum passed away um, a few years ago and she left us some money. So that was the money that we used that funded our last cycle, which was successful, thankfully. And it's successful, which is great news and congratulations. And so obviously, because you've had to make that investment yourselves, you have to use your savings, you've had to go to the credit union, use your inheritance. What has it meant for your life then? So it's basically meant that while you're undergoing IVF treatment, your life is on hold anyway. Um, so usually it's when people maybe decide at a time in their lives to settle down and have a family is about the same time where they might be taking out a mortgage or buying their first home. All these things tend to come together. So if you're struggling with infertility, um, you know our priority was a family. So as a result of that, we, we haven't bought a home. We haven't been on a holiday for I don't know how long. I mean a foreign holiday all these things just go out the window your focus is is trying to get pregnant and have a baby that's what you want to do but to the detriment of everything else and the huge inequality here is that if you were living in most other parts of europe nearly all other parts of europe you would be subsidized yeah i mean ireland is a complete outlier when it comes to funding for ivf um for any fertility treatment really and um, there is no public funding so there's a i think there's a, a very short a small amount of service available to medical card holders but as i understand that's quite a limited service <clears throat> so in ireland you fund it yourself um, if you can't afford to fund it yourself or take out a loan then you don't get to have a family and that's completely inequitable it's wrong in my opinion that those who can afford to have a family can have one and those that can't don't well that's June Shannon there and Brian also was talking to a clinic specialising in fertility. I was with Dr John Waterstone, he's medical director of Waterstone Clinic, they've several facilities in Ireland, in Cork, Dublin as well. They're located in an 18th century two-storey building in Cork, it has a state-of-the-art laboratory at the back of it and the thing I suppose that struck me really clear is how much the science in this whole area has accelerated. When John was telling me he began life as a, a junior gynaecologist, this whole area of medical expertise wasn't really even an option so in the last 20 years it's grown and in the last five it's really accelerated for him obviously there's a very strong business model since covid hit actually they've they've gotten even busier i think perhaps people have saved some money and maybe people are reassessing their their life choices but he said it can be very difficult when couples are going for for example, for multiple cycles of treatment and then money becomes an issue. He began by telling me about the general cost of fertility treatment. You're talking about roughly €5,000 for a cycle of IVF treatment. And, uh, the, and the percentage guarantees differ from patient to patient. That's the whole problem with IVF. When it works, it's magic. You know, a couple try for a baby for five years, no joy. They have IVF treatment, baby results, you're God. But many couples try and it doesn't work the first time and sometimes it doesn't work the second time or the third time either and the chance that the treatment will work is heavily dependent on the woman's age so the biggest factor by far is the woman's age and the next biggest factor is the number of eggs we collect and the average age of our IVF patients these days is creeping up and up as the years go by it's frightening but anyway at the moment it's between 37 and 38 so if you're 35 or younger then the chance that one treatment cycle will produce a baby, and that's including any frozen embryos that come out of that one cycle, is about 50% in a good unit. But as you get older, the chance goes down. So you get up to 40 years old rather than 35, and the chances are down to kind of 25 to 30%. And why do you think it is in Ireland that I think we're one of two countries in the EU where it's not subsidised? Um, I mean, there, there is a promise. Leo Varga has made a promise, a commitment in the past to fund IVF treatment. So I think funding is going to come along in some way, shape or form. It just seems incredible. We have this science, this technology. It's incredible what you're doing here. 
but that's some people are excluded from it. It's it's a heartbreaker, you know. For mm-hmm. me, I sit down and at a consultation, and I've got a couple in front of me, and they're struggling financially, and uh, and they need another treatment cycle, and they're struggling to to pay for it, and they're thinking about borrowing from their in-laws or whatever. I mean, I'm lucky here, my own boss. Uh, this stage of my life I'm well off I don't need to gouge my patients so to speak I give away to patients because sometimes you've got somebody from the it's quite obvious they're struggling and so you knock a couple of grand off the next cycle or whatever you do what you can for them it's okay to say the government will pay but let's face it that's, that's us taxpayers who pay so I mean the government will pay trips off the tongue very nicely but I mean at the end of the day things cost money and somebody has to pay um, and it's a question of making funding available and making it in some way equitable and it's, it's never easy to, to make those rules. Dr John Waterstone talking to Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Frank called Joe about energy prices and the €100 Euro off your bill. It was an idea that uh, Pascal Donahue, the Minister for Finance, floated on Thursday and Friday. And that was in January. Uh, the simplest thing in the world, everybody's, everyone's ESB bill would be, with the flick of a computer uh, programme, would be reduced by exactly €100. Euro. Why, why, do you not, why, why do you not think it's a good idea? Uh, it's not that I don't think it's a good idea, Joe. Good afternoon to you. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. Great. I, I just think the distribution of it is the problem. Why do I say that? Yeah. Does everyone in Ireland need 100 quid after the ESB bill? No. I think not, Joe. Okay. But there are those that do, yeah. that are desperate. Yeah. And I'm all for them getting it. I don't need it. How do you decide it? How do you decide who gets it and who doesn't get it? It will cost you... Well, I, don't co- think it, I don't think it's that hard in, in doing that, Joe. We've come through a year and a half with pandemics, unemployment, people trying to live on 350 euros. Yeah, I know, I know, no, I, I know, you know all that. We know all that. We'll put the pandemic aside for a few minutes. Yeah, you, but uh, we have the point uh, I'm making... The point I'm making is... We have the, a list. The ESB or energy yeah. or whatever, okay, they, okay. they know nothing on their ESB bill about your income. Nothing. No, that's right. Nothing. No. So how do they decide which one to dock to give 100 quid to and which one not to give 100 quid to? Okay, the government are obviously in, in control of distributing it, and I think they have that list of what people list? who lost. Or, a list of people who had to sign on the PUP, making three fifty a, a week, yeah. and th- that's all there. All generated, it's already there. Give the hundred euro to them. Two hundred and seventy million. I wish it was a hundred and seventy million. The figure I heard. Or hundred and seventy million. Yeah, 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 you're right. On the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.